Recorded from the Mecca Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we're learning together how to be Christians in the age of fulfillment. I'm your host, Sean McCrane. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we take just a short moment to thank you for all that you do, loving us so much. You gave us your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, and through his life and death and resurrection, he saved us, and we just rejoice in that. We pray your blessings upon our audience, seekers of truth, and especially um, uh, Seth and Wendy and Mags, who keep the show going out to people who watch it at home. And we love you and seek you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're watching this in 5 or 10 or 20 or 200 years from now, we are taping this program during a worldwide pandemic from a a disease that they call COVID-19. And there's all sorts of ideas out there and opinions floating around in the world relative to this disease or flu or whatever you want to talk. Whoever you talk to has a different idea. And I don't want to speak to whether this disease is what people say it is or not. I want to just share with you two examples of Christian love that I have seen relative to the disease in this little place of ours that we call the church studio. Last week, I read about a man walking up to people on the street and blowing into their faces. And uh, most people around the world are wearing masks today because of this pandemic as a means to prevent the transference of the disease from others. But this guy, I suppose, decided to show non-love and to actually walk up and blow his breath into people's uh, faces. So I want to share two related stories that are opposite of this, and they happened right here at campus. The first began with my daughter Delaney. Now, she just got out of a very liberal grad school experience in Michigan where she was deluged daily, literally, about the importance of being socially responsible. I mean, it really weighs heavily in that environment of academia. And to her, it's responsible, uh, it's a responsible act to wear a mask. And, but perhaps more importantly, at least to her, is that uh, she thinks it's important to wear a mask because of her father. I have a kind of a history of bronchitis, and because I'm at the age, or in the age range when people die from COVID, men who are heavy and they're in their late 50s to 60s, 70s, etc., and they have breathing conditions, She's adopted the practice of wearing a mask. Whenever she comes to campus, she wears a mask without fail, out of concern for others, but especially out of concern for me uh, since we live in the uh, same place. So this is the first story of agape love. She wears the mask because she believes it's socially responsible and it shows agape love for others. And especially she is saying, I'll wear it against my wishes to be free from it because my dad could get this disease. The second story begins with a campus regular. His name is David, David, we call him David. And David, really it's David in the Hebrew, is uh, David, just doesn't sound good, is very well read. And he personally does not seem to believe or care about the media reports of COVID-19. He has that right. He doesn't wear a mask, generally speaking. And uh, he, he sees things differently from, than a lot of people might, and that's fine. But the other day, he wanted to talk with Delaney about something, and he disappeared. He said, you know, and he just disappeared from the scene. Where did he go? He went to his car, and he got a mask, and he put it on, and then he approached Delaney to have the conversation. Now, Dave could have approached her without a mask, as a means to show and prove his rights as an American citizen, uh, but he instead chose to show uh, the uh, necessity of respecting another person and honoring their wishes uh, by wearing a mask when he enjoy, uh, engaged in conversation with her. And uh, it's in cases like these that you see Christian living being played out. It's that type of thing where the, the Christian faith is manifested among each other. It's not whether Dave believed wearing a mask is important. I doubt he did uh, because I know his beliefs. But nevertheless, he respected someone else. And he said, I will show them this respect because I will show my Christian love before I show my American rights. And I think that was just really, really important. And it spoke volumes. And I wanted to share it uh, at this time. In the first verses of many of Paul's epistles, I almost said pills, apostles, um, he will admit being an apostle by the will of God. He says that. 
In 2 Timothy, the first verse reads, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Again, that line, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm an apostle in accordance with the great promise of eternal life given by God that all may have eternal life through the Savior Christ Jesus. That's what he says, you know, in expanded version. We sometimes speak of Christ suffering for the sins of the world and that as a result, the world has been reconciled to God and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I maintain that to be true. Uh, universal reconciliation, uh, not salvation to his kingdom, but a reconciliation of God through the shed blood of Christ. We sometimes talk about how the wrath of God was poured out on the nation of Israel for rejecting his son. And that wrath is no longer abiding on people since his son paid for the sin once and for all of the world. Again, I maintain that this is true. While fully rejecting the teaching that God poured his wrath out on either his son, I don't believe that, and I don't believe God pours his wrath out on people today. Uh, I, I reject that too. We have even talked about how at the death of every individual in the age of fulfillment, ever since then, all people will go to a heavenly realm because hell, Sheol, and Satan have been done away with, and that heavenly realm is open uh, now, with some people existing within the walls of the New Jerusalem, as it's described, and others uh, entering into a place where uh, that's outside of that kingdom, however that looks. And I agree with those concepts as well. In the verse I just read to you, Paul is speaking specifically and only of these latter people, these people whom he was called to be an apostle. They were those who received God's promise of eternal life, which means those who received Christ by faith, which means those who uh, became children of God, which means specifically those who became sons and daughters of God by faith. And, and these and only these are they who have eternal life. And, and, and uh, which to me is, are the ones that it's really only worth talking about when push comes to shove. It's not that I don't like other people. Uh, all the other factors mentioned a minute ago that God has done this and he has done that and there's an outside of the kingdom and, and reconciliation of the world and all that stuff. Those things really in the end are ancillary details uh, when it comes to God's love for all. The purpose and focus are those who are his by faith. So the point and purpose and fulfillment of all that God has done and promised is founded on the biblical fact that those who receive Christ by faith are saved by God's grace. They become his family, even his sons and daughters in this life and in the life to come. Scripture describes them as those who have true life in them. True life in them. Which is a way to say, that they have genuine life and are living. And so while I have a heart for the rest and enjoy other people and their contributions to the things of this world and appreciate atheist chefs who make a great meal at a restaurant or filmmakers who make a great movie, grateful for what they do and love them, etc., etc., um, they are, in fact, relative to Scripture, spiritually dead. They really, they, they have no inkling for God, his kingdom, or anything that has to do with it. These are biblical facts. So, Paul was called to be an apostle of life to that world, to bring the good news of eternal life to all who would hear and believe and receive, which was God's promise to the world, believe on my son, and you have the promise of eternal life. So that's the focus of our ministry to reiterate to all who are truly his that you have, possess, real, genuine, eternal life, that you are, in fact, his sons and daughters, and that there's a distinctive place for you in his kingdom, both here in your life now as the kingdom of God is within you, and, in the, uh, and, it's, and after this life, and it's more distinctive than any place in the universe, 
It is the singular most distinctive place that you could ever imagine, and we are part of it. The eternal home of the Lord God Almighty. Hand in hand with that call on your life, which you have received by faith and God has gifted it to you, there's the fact that sons and daughters see this life differently, um, differently than anybody else. And the one, one of the main differences in your life is how you see and understand the living God and his son in the scriptures and how you understand the scripture when you read it relative to ways that have been historically accepted by others. You will be unique in your understanding of Scripture. Um, you will be unique in your heart and you unique in some of your perspectives. Truly, you were uniquely and wonderfully made. And what makes you truly unique is that you are attuned to the Spirit in ways that many people do not understand. Even other said believers don't understand it. These distinguishing characteristics will always manifest themselves in an abundance of agape love for others. But it's also manifests itself in other ways. And one of those ways is, is what you see in Scripture. It comes about in what you decipher and understand from the written word. Have you ever read a passage of scripture and seen and understand it, stood it in a way that others have never thought of? Has it come to you in a way that way? That's the Holy Spirit that brings the truth of it out to you. Have you then tested and ratified that belief through other scripture and seen that it's supported and then have most of the traditional say, no, 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 that's not true. I suggest that that's a product of the Holy Spirit. And it happens when people are his spirit-filled and led. And I want to give you an example of that tonight, which is another one of the shows we're calling the New Testament Perspective. And we're going to do a series of shows called the New Testament Perspective. Last week, I gave you a perspective that talked about uh, uh, 1 Timothy and the command to call out sinners before the group. Okay, tonight I want to talk to you about one that's daring because most people shut their minds the minute that it's mentioned. This book. What is it? The book of Revelation. The book of Revolution. Uh, the book of Revelation scares people or they get so absorbed in it, they just go off the Richter on interpretation. So I seek to give you a glimpse, just a really small glimpse on how the book has been so abused and misused over the centuries and then maybe how to help you see or give you an example of what a reasonable study of the book can do to bringing it around to making some real sense. All right. So here's a new perspective. To make matters of scripture, to make matters more difficult is I'm going to give you a new perspective from one of the most freakish John must have been on acid chapters in the book. I don't think he was on acid. Mushrooms, maybe, but no, just kidding. It's a nightmarish chapter known as Revelation number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. Those of you Beatles fans will laugh at that. Remember the Beatles' white album, Revolution number nine, was an amalgam of voices and sounds through John Lennon's attempt to represent an audio version of what revolution actually would sound like. Good old Charlie Manson took the music and he applied it to his unique interpretation of some of the book of Revelation, including chapter nine, because it's repeated over and over again. Number nine, number nine. And, and he gave some really wild views of it. I don't suggest Manson's approach to the book uh, as a, mes a reasonable means of interpretation. But I do want to read three verses, four verses, uh, out of revolution, uh, revol revolution, revolution, Revelation number nine, without the input of Manson, and see if we can figure out what it says. Ready? And the sh verse seven, and the shapes of the locusts were likened to horses prepared unto battle. Remember that line. 
were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were crowns of gold, and their faces were the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound as the wings of the sound of chariots of many horses running into battle, and they had tails like unto scorpions, and their stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. All right. Also in Revelation 9, 2 through 3, a locust army is released from the abyss. So you have this imagery of all these locust creatures coming out from this pit abyss, right? And the king of the locust army being identified as the angel of the abyss, whose name is Apollyon. And so we have this other idea that there's a king of the locusts coming out of this abyss and his name is Apollyon. So let's just talk about the locust people. All right, just for a second. Growing up, I heard so many interpretations of these scary creatures that, uh, and they came from otherwise reasonable people. People who like were accountants in their day job and then they would say, oh, but I'll just wait till the locust people come. And they took it very literally. And they read the passage and they, they, they took it literally, even though John says in the very first verse of Revelation, I am going to present what I see through signification, through signs and symbols. That's what he says in the very first verse. And yet we have people who take the content and they describe it literally to us. So let me read verse 3 of chapter 9 and cover it. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, and the, as the scorpions of the earth have power. So unlike Charlie Manson, who from his own imagination believed that the locusts represented the beetles. Locust beetles? <laughs> That's really bad hermeneutics. And unlike the other depictions and descriptions of the locust by futurist fanatics um, that have dominated the media for decades, locusts are an ancient Canaanite and biblical metaphor for an invading foreign army. All right. And an invading army would be a Gentile army. Looking to the Bible to help us with interpretation, it's interesting that in Exodus, locusts were used, remember, when Moses and tries to break Pharaoh and the Egyptians to release them. And so at the beginning of everything, we have the locust invasion going on there. And now at the end, we have locusts again appearing. And, 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 and they're being unleashed upon people who were freed in Revelation versus they were unleashed on people who put people into bondage in Exodus. Going back to Exodus 10, beginning at verse 4, God says to Pharaoh, Else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring the locusts into your coast. And they shall cover the face of the earth that they cannot be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail and shall eat every tree which grows for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses and the houses of all thy servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day that they were put upon the earth till this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. That's what Moses says to him. So here we have a basic biblical parallel going on. This is the first way to approach the content. It's a biblical parallel. Let's step back and break the biblical idea of locusts down before uh, we start to call them John, Peter, Paul, and not Peter, John, Paul, Ringo, and George. So first, there is a, an extreme similarity between the Hebrew word for locust, which is hargol, H-A-R-G-O-L, and the Arabic word for troops, which is Hargal, H-A-R-G-A-L. And when you look at it in the writing, they're so similar that they can be mistaken or be uh, transferred. The similarity between those two words in neighboring languages implies a common origin for both in the fact that locusts were traditionally identified as troops in ancient Middle Eastern customs. So there's another thing to put into our 
hat of information about how to identify locusts in Revelation. We see this illustrated in the first and second chapters of Joel, where the Babylonian army of the 6th century BC is portrayed as a swarm of locusts. Okay, so now we have an example in scripture of the Babylonian army, Gentiles, invading nation of Israel and being described as a swarm of locusts. Physiologically, the head of a locust, now so let's look at another angle. The head of a locust looks so much like a horse that one of the ancient references describes locusts as one, they have an oblong head like to that of a horse bending downward. So you notice that in this revelation of the locusts in, in, in Revelation chapter 9, that John appeals to horses three times in that verse. And he says these locusts are coming out of the earth. It's also interesting that the Italians, listen, uh, call locusts cavaletta. Cavaletta, right? Which means Calvary. And that, of course, Calvary is a word that we use to describe horse riding men used in war. So in these languages, we see, well, they call it Cavaletta, Calvary, horses, uh, shaped like a horse. And we start to put some things together when it comes to interpretation. The Arabic writer Bochart in 1692 says, locusts resemble, resemble, locusts resemble 10 different kinds of animals. The horse in its head is the first one mentioned, the elephant in its eyes, the bull in its neck, the stag in its horns, the lion in its breast, the scorpion in its belly, the eagle in its wings, the camel in its thighs, the ostrich in its feet, and then the serpent in its tail. But most, the most prominent resemblance is to the horse, which is why the prophet Joel mentions the, uh, the invasion of horses and the Arabic writer mentions horses first. In the book of Judges, we read Judges 6.3, And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth. Remember that. Till thou come to Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came as grasshoppers of the multitude. For they came and their camels were without number and they entered into the land to destroy it. So now we have another factor to be played into what locusts do. They come into a land and they destroy it. So John is talking about these locust figures in Revelation chapter 9 that are led by this captain of the locusts, Abaddon. And we have this idea that they destroy the land too. Okay. More references to locusts and armies are found in Judges 7, Jeremiah 51, and uh, Nahum 3. So now we have some secular understanding of locusts and some direct biblical understanding of how they are understood and used anciently as representing warriors, especially invading armies, especially invading armies on horseback, and always Gentile. Okay, so now we're getting a better picture. The fact that the foreign Gentile armies are symbolized by yokus, yokus, it's getting worse. I think I had a strokus. All right. It's not just found in the Bible. The Talmud, it reads, listen to this quote, the destruction of Jerusalem during Israel's first century war with Rome came through a kamza, locust, and a bar kamza, son of locust, is how the Talmud describes it. We know locusts didn't have any participation in the destruction of Jerusalem, literal creature grasshoppers. So even, even the Talmud describes locusts in a different way. So it's really important, 500 AD, that the Talmud says Jerusalem was destroyed by locusts. And that is mere imagery for Roman soldiers. That's what it means all the way. So when you read Revelation chapter 9 about these locust creatures, you're reading about Roman army soldiers in that day. That's exactly what you're reading. But 
Some are still looking for a fulfillment of this in the future, and some of them are looking for locust-type creatures that will actually come up from the pit of hell and do whatever they do with their stinging tails. I mean, there's literally grown-up people who believe that, and they interpret it that way. Those are non-contextual, non-historical, hysterical, unreasonable views that from people who have not taken the time to just do some general research on what John could possibly mean through the description of this symbol that he is providing us. But we don't start, stop there. We move out even to a fairly reputable modern lexicon, Strong's Concordance. I don't often uh, cite it because I think there are better lexicons. And we discover the following under the number 1471 for the word Gentile in Hebrew. Listen to this. In Strong's, the word for Gentile in Hebrew, gawi or goi, rarely shortened goi. That's, how they, that's what the Jews call non-Jews, goys, right? And it means Gentile. Strong says, apparently from the same root as 465 in the sense of meaning, a foreign nation, hence a Gentile, figuratively a troop of animals or a flight of locusts. That is how Strong's identifies the Greek word goi, goye, there for, lo, for Gentile. And now we know that John, who was a Hebrew, is identifying those locusts as an invading Gentile army on Cavaletta on horseback. Directly, a flight of locusts. And now we have contextual, researched, understanding of what is being described by John in Revelation number nine, number nine, number nine. An invasion of Gentiles, and more appropriately, an invasion of Gentiles on horseback. We don't invade armies. We don't invade countries on horseback anymore. And they were warriors with helmets and shields and swords sticking out behind them that looked like the tail of a scorpion. Roman soldiers. We also know that when laying siege to a city, and this is the final point I think I'm going to make, invading forces, much like the swarm of locusts, would often leave the, the surrounding countryside devastated of vegetation, animal life, in order to feed the war effort. And additionally, these armies would often set fire to anything their armies might find useful in their wake. So this is exactly what the Romans did, according to Josephus and Suetonius and Tacitus, uh, uh, with Palestine and the surrounding areas. Interestingly, locusts were known to the people of Palestine as burners of the land. So when we have Rome doing the very same thing to Palestine and John revealing this through Revelation, having been told by Christ, all of this was happening quickly. We have context, we have research, we have everything necessary to properly understand and interpret the book of Revelation chapter 9 verses 7 through 10. It's there. Now, that was a lot to do it, but that's why I stand so ardently on the things I believe is because I'll do the research, I'll do the work to find out what it really means, and I'll stick by it because we study to show ourselves approved. I could literally, in fact, I literally do take every line and every description of these locusts and their sting and their long hair as women and their leader, Apollyon, in the five months, and directly tie it to everything that happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD without stretching, without making anything up. Um, if that's possible, and if I'm correct, then the book has nothing to do in terms of reality with our future. And it means we're living in an age of fulfillment. And Christ has come and taken his bride. And what remains are those individuals who choose to walk and live according to the spirit and the kingdom that dwells within them. And this is just going to be another example. Next week, we're going to go to another set of scriptures. And we're going to completely different from Revelation. And I'm going to show you, if just a little research, you can understand this in a far more contextual, reasonable way than what we have done in the past. All right, we're going to your comments and... Um,
appreciate that you make them because it gives us something to talk about. We're going to start with uh, Sarah Leanne Young. Sarah Leanne Young happens to be sitting here in the audience today with her husband, Joe, and three children. Last time we saw them, there was only one and a half. So they're uh, multiplying and replenishing the earth. And she says, I think those who spout Sola Scriptura are really for human authority because this is what usually happens. Person A says, I think Christ wants me to love everyone, including homosexuals, end quote. Person B says, but the Bible says it's a sin and we need to separate ourselves from and rebuke sin, end quote. Person A then says, I think you're twisting the true intention behind the scriptures you're referencing, end quote. Whose opinion wins when sola scriptura is the standard? Whoever has more man-made authority in the church, whether they're right or not. And it's a great point. We take that, we take that line, sola scriptura, and we think it, it holds so much power. But in reality, what it does is it causes us to, like she says, lean toward human authority to tell us how to interpret it instead of the Holy Spirit and the fruit, which is love, to interpret it through that lens. So I thought that was a great comment. Douglas Hagen on the Book of Mormon introduction said, our speaker guest is an ex-Mormon. I don't know if he's communicated by Joseph Smith, excommunication. I do not understand how to read a, these comments. What does that even mean? I, 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 okay, and then Douglas uh, Hagen above, he says, once you are excommunicated from the Mormon church, you cannot come back. That is not true, Brother Douglas. Um, the Mormon church will give you opportunities to come back. I knew a guy who was excommunicated three times for the same thing, different, different women, but the same thing three times on my mission. You can come back. You got to show contrition. You got to pay your tithes while you're not a member. You got to attend the meetings and you got to you know, profess Joseph as the prophet and you have to repent, change your ways from the sin that you've committed, and they will let you back in. So uh, just a clarification on that. Jamar Williamson wrote, it's scientifically proven that all so-called races come from those born with E1B1A DNA, which is the very first human chromosome ever to be in existence. <laughs> and I have someone laughing in here. I don't know the difference. I'm like, yeah, E1B1A. Uh, I have no idea. Genetic scientists call it the African genome, which is a big lie because it traces back to the Middle East, not Africa. So-called Arakan Ameri, but we have a bloodline trait that identifies them, blah, 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 blah. While real Africans have the E1B1 DNA, which means only that only Africans come from ham, not so-called African Ameri. <sighs> okay. Okay. It's too advanced for me. You lost me at E1B1A. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Jamar, wrong place. Freedom Patriot regarding Christians who don't go to church show said the Moon Trilogy. Okay. Robbie Carter says, views mean nothing. That was re uh, relative to the show, dismantling and replacing. And I think they are indicative. I think they mean something, but I don't think they mean anything relative to uh, quality. That's why there can be 16 million views of, of a woman scratching her belly button. And so, but they do mean something if something qualitative is being seen. And so whatever that is. Uh, Richard Anzlovar said, what physically happened to the world when the Holy Spirit came down? Did everyone else feel something? And then Joan Lantis says, that's an excellent and interesting question. I hope Sean or someone with more knowledge than I answers it. That being said, I have always thought that the Spirit does now write God's law on our hearts after Pentecost. So I would say yes. Uh, you know, it's interesting because we know the Holy Spirit fell and rested upon uh, the apostles at Pentecost. And we know that many souls were converted, 3,000 plus, but we don't have any indication that the Holy Spirit touched every single person's heart. However, that being said, Romans 1, Paul makes it clear that um, everybody has been touched 
and bears a knowledge of God within them to some extent or another. Everybody, and therefore, Paul concludes, therefore, they are without excuse. So whether the Holy Spirit touched everybody there or didn't, we really can't know. It doesn't say, but uh, we do know that everybody has indications of God in their life. Okay, this is a long conversation. Uh, This is about I Got the Power, and it starts off with Sarah Leanne Young saying, LDS kids are raised, definitely raised with a different mentality than evangelical Christian kids. She knows this because she was raised in evangelicalism. I'm actually not sure which is worse, she concludes. Teaching children they have power because of the authority they hold in their church or telling children they have no power and the only person who has any is the pastor. It's a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, I would add, though, to that point that in the LDS church, while the members are given the quote-unquote power of the priesthood, etc., at least the males, uh, they are always told that there are men above them that have more power. So they still have the problem with uh, pastors having no authority, uh, bishops, etc., and imposing power on their congregants. So uh, just to cover that point, and I'm not going to go um, further on that. Moving up, we have Jimmy say, yo, Sean, what up, bro? Thank you, Jimmy. Dwayne Dahl, let's face it. Just whose names were on the gates of the new temple? Twelve tribes of Israel. Are the LDS or anyone living today in these tribes? Nope. And that is a really good point. There are, I didn't think it was the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, maybe on the gates, but on the pillars that hold up the new Jerusalem, it's the 12 apostles names. And that that answers the question perhaps better about the LDS because there's only 12 uh, apostles named on that. And since Judas isn't one of them, then we could suppose that Paul replaced him. I got the power. Robbie says, UPC, United Pentecostal Church, and other oneness Pentecostals is almost identical in this respect to the Mormon church. I deny the Trinity, but the powers that be in the Pentecostal church see this as a special revelation, and therefore they think they have special authority. It blows my mind how much Mormonism and Pentecostalism are alike, not in doctrine, but in spirit. I would suggest that to some extent or another, all institutional religions are the same when it comes to uh, authority and in spirit. They all approach brick and mortar religion with that same spirit, and which is the thing that we resist so strongly here. Uh, John Humble, he is an LDS guy who watches the show and he, uh, he comments sometimes. Uh, On I got the power, the the proposition I made was that the LDS um, imbue many of their believers with a sense of superiority. They do that by telling them that they are in the only true church. And And I sang the song, they say, I belong to the church of Jesus Christ. I know who I am. I know God's plan. I follow him in faith. And they, you don't find a Baptist saying, I know who I am and I know God's plan. They say, I trust God, I trust Jesus. The LDS teach that the children that they know. And so you, there comes a chutzpah with that. And then they are baptized by somebody having the authority. So that baptism is special. It's unique to the others. And then they go on and they are given a special priesthood if they're males when they're 12. And they get to pass a sacrament to other people. There's more elevation. And then the Melchizedek priesthood. And I made the argument that then they get endowed. And they wear special undergarments. And there's pride at the base of all this. John Humble says the opposite was my experience. He's still LDS. Growing up in a small branch in Michigan, the LDS church was a small group of very kind people. We had scouts and youth activities and mutual and super Saturdays. I was the only LDS in my schools growing up. The priesthood never made me feel like I was better than anyone. They themselves are ordinary men who always serve in the community. The power you speak of had different relationships where I grew up. That's fine. But I'm talking about generally speaking. 
And here in the Mecca of Mormonism, if you want to see attitude and you want to see people who walk by that power and think that they have something that others don't, live in Utah. And, you know, I'm going to judge Mormonism not by the exceptions in outskirt Michigan of a group of people who got along and were more Christian than most LDS. I'm going to look at where the core of Mormons live. And when you come here and you experience the attitude from them, you can see it. And people who have been LDS can taste it. And I would suggest strongly it is part and parcel of the way that the church is organized with their different bestowals of power on men, usually almost always men, along the way. So, John, you can disagree with me, but uh, I, I think that you're uh, incorrect in the general assessment of Mormonisms. Kenya Mendez and I got the power says, why do Mormons need Jesus? They create their own justification system. And it's a really good point. Uh, they do need Jesus because they do believe he shed his blood for the sins of the world. But that, that shed blood is effective only when they uh, repent and they do everything necessary for Jesus the janitor to come up and wipe, the, wipe their sin away. Jesus' blood doesn't effectively do anything for anybody unless they go through the repentance process, which the Mormons only provide because there's some sins that have to be confessed to a proper priesthood authority. And so therefore, your true repentance is only possible through the Mormon church because they have the priesthood leadership, apparently, that is able to forgive those sins. So, but Jesus in the Mormon church did shed his blood for the wiping away of sin for those who qualify. And I got to tell you, you know, uh, if you sin once and you qualify for Jesus' blood and you sin again and you go back to qualify, he shows up a little bit later. And if you sin a third time, he's going to take his vacation to Florida before he shows up and helps you a third time. And if you do it, if you have a history of problems with the sin, Jesus doesn't show up at all until you have done a ton of stuff to, for Jesus to say, okay, I guess you're ready for it now. And that's one of the big differences between Mormonism and Christianity relative to Jesus. I got the power as Zen 101 said, Russell Nelson took a shot at being called the Mormons to overemphasize their long-winded name. It's simple dog whistle psychology. Say it enough times and they convince themselves that, that, by, that by name they are the Church of Jesus Christ and a type of cognitive osmosis will confirm. Mormonism is not a religion based upon facts. It's based upon indoctrination. And I would agree. I would agree with that completely. Uh, relative to I got the power, I, David Janbaz says, I saw the video with Rob Bowman. Glad to see your humility and willingness for clarity. Sounds like you just need better use of terminology and you're not rejecting the Trinity. I accept most of uh, the Trinitarian concepts. So I reject the uh, Trinity in terms of a pre-existent, co-equal, co-eternal, Son and Spirit that are as separate as me and Eric and Sarah. I reject that those three are separate, distinct persons, co-equal uh, forever and ever and ever. I embrace that there's a Father. I embrace there's a Son. I embrace the Holy Spirit. I believe all of them are God. I believe that Jesus is a, 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 was a man who had God in him completely. All of those things that the, the Trinity will teach. My only problem is the eternality of the Son, junior, junior God, junior Holy Spirit. That's the only problem I have. And I, and I reject it because I don't see it supported in Scripture. I see that God's Word was made flesh. I don't see John saying God's junior Son was made flesh. And that's the problem. So uh, I know it's greatly debated, greatly debated. And I don't part ways with someone who is a Trinitarian. I always will admit maybe they're right, but my mind cannot grasp what they teach relative to Scripture. 
Uh, Hawk Davidson, relative to New Bible Perspective, said, Loved you when both our hair had no white. Wow, it's almost been 15 years. I ain't much, but when we first spoke, I was a Mormon, fresh out of jail, no hope. Now I own and farm 100 acres. Awesome house. But best of all, four awesome God-given children. Do you remember me? I listened them years ago. Jaden, Aaron, Aviva, Jesse, I love you, sir, forever plus a day. You prayed for me, with me. I'm uber blessed. I deserve nothing. Love you, Sean. And then Hawk Davidson says, be happy and blessed. Love you too. Hawk, I don't remember. I thought I would probably remember your name, but I don't remember our time talking or anything, but praise God. Dwayne Dahl Jr. says, where is the Holy Spirit today? It was only staying until the purchase possession was redeemed. AD 70 was the date of expiration. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. That's a good question. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I haven't thought of it, but I'll have to give it some thought. And it's one I can't answer right now. Sarah Leanne Young. She's a verbose woman, isn't she? <laughs> In New Bible's perspective, she says, I'm not going to make any judgment about Aaron's level of devoutness. I talked about Aaron Shafafalov, who is a, a guy. He's moved away from Utah to go get a master's degree in theology so he can come back to Utah and teach people false doctrine about Calvin. But uh, I'm just kidding, Aaron. No animus, no animus. Um, but you are clearly a very devout Christian brother, only surpassed by your humility. Thanks for, well, you can make these comments all day long, Sarah. <laughs> only surpassed by your humility. Thanks for clearing up this scripture. I look forward to the rest of the series. And I do too. It's, it's been fun and I look forward to continue to do it. Mossy Man 789 Moss says, we all need accountability. We all need accountability. And I would agree with that completely. But it's to whom we are accountable that I would disagree with you. The line seems to sound like you're saying we should be accountable to other men. And that I completely disagree with. I don't think anybody should be accountable to another human being when it comes to the faith. I think we are accountable to God and God alone uh, in and through Christ Jesus. And that is our accountability. That's who we're going to be accountable to when we die. And that's who we're accountable to while we live. People will say, well, uh, Timothy was accountable to Paul. Well, that was in the age when the church was, you know, under apostolic authority and everything else. You bring me the apostles, show me the living apostles who have seen the resurrected Christ and are giving their life for it in the same way the apostles did in the New Testament. I'll give you my accountability to them. But until that time happens, it's straight between me and God in my estimation. Um... Santa Cruz hippie surfer says Aaron is wrong, lacking an object consistency. So, okay, I know a man that acts justly and loves kindness and mercy and who walks humbly with his God. Just do that and call people out there on bullshit. Just say no to cognitive dissonance. Learn emotional literacy and develop a fully formed frontal cortex. Talking to you, Aaron, he says. Then he says above, Sean is wrong. Life is a gateway drug. Idiot, and it is that a white shirt with a red polka dot. Cali, good weed. Medical cannabis and excedrin aspirin and chocolate milk. And... Um, on Demo Crazy, Adnan says, Adnan spot on. Uh, that's from Robbie Carter. Working through it, getting through it, almost there. I have a question. Sean, my friend, can you tell me, this is from Magic Man 21, what you think the Old Testament God really is? Because the more I studied, it appears he's the devil in disguise. So could you please check that out, T-Y? That means thank you. Um, I don't think the Old Testament God is the devil. 
I think uh, maybe you're interpreting Scripture differently than I do. I think the Old Testament God is the same God we have now. Just some certain factors have been included in the way He works with us. So my estimation is the Old Testament God is the true and living God who was not created, always was, and ever will be. Lane Scott, very interesting study relative to Satan, part two. Robbie Carter, again, talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Skip that one. Panda Bear on Christian autism says, I don't think you know what autism is. We covered this last week. I don't know why it's there. Almost through to the end, guys. Oh, these are all relative to body image, which is what we're going to be talking about on Cat. You should watch Cat, Christian Anarchy Today. It's a show I'm doing with Ethan and Steve, and it's fun. And these are all relative to that. We have one guy who keeps saying, oh, drop the cash. Mr. Drop the Cash says Mormons are con artists. Um, some of them are, some of them are not. And Billy Davis, this guy, he always puts, Father Yahweh, forgive us of our sins. And then later on down the line, he says, may Father Yahweh bless your understanding. So all he is doing is blessing people through this. And if that's his mode, good. I like it. We'll keep going with that. We're out of comments. And uh, check out all the information below, all the links. Hit subscribe. Give us a thumbs up. Check out Heart of the Matter on Monday nights, our short show. Check out Heart of the Matter on Tuesday nights, our long show. Check out Campus Church Teachings on Sundays, which are archived, but we're also live at 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday and 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, Milk and Meat. And then watch our Christian Anarchy Today show where you can uh, hear Steve and Ethan and I talk about every subject under the sun. We also support several ministries, and since Sarah's here, uh, I'm going to uh, promote checkmychurch.org. <laughs> Verbose, too. She's all behind that thing, and it does a great job in how she set it up. So much work has gone into that site, and it is someday going to be picked up, recognized, and used around the world. That's a prophesy from me. So check that out. And we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.